Please be turning with me to Galatians 2. The Epistle of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul to multiple churches within the district of Galatia. Paul had preached the true gospel among the Galatians, and they had received it with joy. However, at some point after Paul's planning of the gospel, false teachers had come in and disturbed the Galatians' faith in Christ alone and distorted the true gospel. The Galatians foolishly allowed this false teaching to flourish and became entangled in a false gospel of self-righteousness. In response, Paul is writing to the Galatians, warning them to renounce the false gospel which is being proclaimed by these Judaizers. Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 and 7, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is amazed. Other versions say astonished or marvel. The idea is that Paul is in disbelief. He did not expect something so basic to the gospel to be abandoned so quickly. In chapter 3, Paul recounts how he had even seen personally himself the work of the true gospel in the Galatians. And he appeals to them to look back and to remember how they had received the Spirit by faith alone. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul defends his apostolic authority, defends the doctrine of justification by faith, explains the true intent of the law, and that righteousness has always come through faith in Christ, and exhorts the Galatians to walk by faith in the Spirit whom they received by faith. Our text for today, Galatians 2, 15-21, is the heart of Paul's entire message throughout his letter to the Galatians. He goes on in chapters 3-6 to to further explain, defend, and flesh it out. But the truth of this text is what Paul wants the Galatians to take hold of. Before we begin with our text, if you would, go to the Lord with me in prayer. Father, we praise You because You alone are worthy. Uh, Father, we thank You for Your Word, that You have given it to us, that You have revealed Yourself uh, through it. Uh, God, we pray that as I speak this morning, that it would not be my words or my message, my truth. God, that it would be Your words, Your truth, Your message. Uh, for those listening, God, that You would open their ears to, to hear uh, Your Spirit. Uh, that You would open their hearts to the work of Your Spirit. That they would hear Your Word. Uh, they would take it to heart and act upon it. Uh, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Galatians 2, 15-21 We are Jews by nature, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified... But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For it is no longer I, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has primarily been defending his apostolic authority. In this text, he's bringing that defense to a close and also presenting the true gospel. The same gospel which he had previously preached to the Galatians and which they had abandoned. As we walk through this text, we will see Paul clearly proclaim that righteousness comes only through Christ. True righteousness has one source, Christ. And as a result, the children of God must live by faith in Jesus Christ. We will look at three different aspects of this faith in Christ. A saving faith, a sanctifying faith, and a glorifying faith. First, let's look at the saving faith. Because righteousness comes through Christ alone, the children of God must begin spiritual life by faith in Christ. First, we see that a man is justified by faith, not by works. Look with me at verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may not be justified so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. It's a little fuzzy the way Paul says it here, but it almost seems like he's trying to communicate that no man will be justified by works of the law. Quite the opposite, actually. Paul couldn't be more clear. Three times in the same sentence, he plainly says that no one can be justified by works of the law. He says instead that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Justified here means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Through faith in Christ alone, man is justified, declared righteous before God. The Judaizers were telling the Galatians that as Gentiles, in order to be declared righteous before God, they must first become Jews through circumcision and following the ceremonial laws and traditions of the Jews. Do what is required outwardly to become like a Jew, and then you will be ready to receive Christ. They weren't completely throwing faith in Christ out the window, or so they thought, but they were adding to it. Fulfill these works of the law and and have faith in Christ, and then you will be saved. In verse 16, Paul makes it crystal clear that works of the law are powerless to bring about justification. But rather, justification comes through one source, faith in Christ. There is no other way. It is also important to realize that although the Judaizers were specifically pressing circumcision and the ceremonial laws on the Gentiles, throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is contending against seeking righteousness from any aspect of God's law. We next see that there are no distinctions regarding how someone receives this justification by faith. Just before our text, in verses 11 through 14, Paul recounted how Peter had withdrawn and distanced himself from the Gentile believers at Antioch. Peter had previously eaten and fellowshiped with the Gentiles, which was an outworking of the true gospel, leaving no barrier between the Jew and Gentile in Christ. But fearing certain Judaizers who had come on the scene, he led himself and others into hypocrisy by putting a barrier between himself and the Gentiles. Paul calls Peter out in verse 14, saying, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Then in verse verse 15, Paul says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Paul is pointing out the obvious fact that many Jews took pride in. We are Jews, God's chosen people, a holy nation, descendants of Abraham, circumcised, recipients of the written law of God. We are not profane sinners and a lawless people as are the Gentiles. We are set apart and superior to them. Historically, the Jews had despised the Gentiles and kept a well-established barrier between themselves and those unclean Gentiles. Paul says, you're right. We are Jews and not Gentiles. We do have all of those privileges. But then he goes on to verse 16. He says, Nevertheless, even though we are Jews, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, even we Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Paul says, We are Jews. But nevertheless, even we are looking to our faith in Christ to be justified and not to our works. If we as Jews with all of our privileges cannot attain righteousness through, through the law, how absurd would it be for us to expect the Gentiles to do so? Then in verse 17 he goes on, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Different scholars explain verse 17 slightly differently. Thankfully, they all come to the same conclusion. Christ is not a minister of sin, and of this we can be certain. I will share with you my understanding of this verse, though. He is in essence saying, If we Jews, while seeking to be justified in Christ, find ourselves living like unclean Gentiles in what we eat and who we associate with, as Paul said Peter had been doing, Does that then make Christ a minister of sin by polluting the clean with the unclean? Paul says, absolutely not. May it never be. Paul knew that the barrier between the Jews and Gentiles had been destroyed, as did Peter. In Acts 10, Luke records the account of Peter and Cornelius when God opened Peter's eyes to finally see that the barrier between the Jews and Gentiles had been abolished. Peter had gone up on the rooftop to pray, and then while in a trance, he saw a sheet filled with a mix of clean and unclean animals. Then in Acts 10, 13-15, a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Then Peter is summoned to visit the Gentile Cornelius. And upon entering Cornelius' house, he says this in verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Then in verse 34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Lastly, in verse 47, after the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and the other Gentiles with him, Peter says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, just as we Jews. Paul's point is this. The ground is level at the cross. We are all unclean, but Christ accomplished the cleansing we all need when He shed His blood for us. As we go on to verse 18, we also see there is no remorse for this justification by faith. 
For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Not only had the barrier between the Jews and Gentiles been destroyed, Christ also destroyed the false system the Jews had established for attaining righteousness through the law. Righteousness has always been through faith in Christ, and His death and resurrection displayed this. To try to build back this false system of salvation through self-righteousness would make Paul a transgressor. It would mean the system never should have been destroyed in the first place. I also have my dad to thank for helping me and understand verse 18. When he was 17 years old, he was burning some brush and accidentally let the fire get away from him. Unfortunately, it got all the way to the barn and burned it to the ground. He immediately knew he was a transgressor because he had destroyed something that was, wasn't supposed to be destroyed. His father further proved him a transgressor when he built the barn back. This isn't the case with the Jews' system of justification by works. Christ destroyed this system, and Paul preached it destroyed without remorse. Lastly, within this saving faith, we see that all must die to live. Verse 19 says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Look with me in chapter 3, where Paul goes into detail explaining the purpose of the law and why it was given. He says the law was never intended to provide a path to righteousness for sinners, but rather it was given to teach us just how sinful we are and how great our need of a Savior. Galatians 3, 10 and 11 says, For as many as are, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. If we make an honest comparison between ourselves and the law, we will quickly see our great state of despair. We can't abide by all things written in the book of the law. We can't even come close. We are crushed and condemned if we seek righteousness through the law. It makes sense to say that those who reject God's law altogether are cursed by the law, which is also true. But here we see we are also crushed by the law even if we attempt to follow it, because we can't do it. Our only hope is Christ, who did fulfill the law in perfect obedience to His Father. Even the Old Testament believers were looking ahead to the coming Messiah who would fulfill the law and lay down His life for them. Any Jew who thought he was gaining righteousness through the law was sadly mistaken, rejecting his own Messiah. Again, in Galatians 3, starting verse 23, Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Then in verse 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The Judaizers had missed the point of the law. The law was not their ticket to being sons of God or descendants of Abraham, but instead faith in Christ. Paul speaks to his own death to the law in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9 saying, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day, 
of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith." Paul had tried to uphold the law and find righteousness by doing so, but this left him dead in his sin. But now, in Christ, he has died to the law and counted all of his works as rubbish or dung, so that he might gain Christ and his righteousness. It is also important to note here that Paul is not saying that the law is bad or a mistake. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The law is perfect in its design to expose our sin and lead us to Christ. The law is also good in its content, calling us to love God and love our neighbor. What we must die to is any attempt to gain righteousness through the law, because that is man's sinful creation and against God's design for the law. Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What does he mean he's been crucified with Christ? He means that those who are justified by faith in Christ have wholly taken on Christ in order to gain His righteousness. Under the law, we are dead in our sin, but through Christ and His death, our old self dies and we are given new life in Christ. The old man no longer lives, but Christ lives in the new man. We are no longer enslaved and condemned by our sin, but we are now new creations in Christ, and His righteousness is credited to us. In His crucifixion, Christ took on and became my sin and my death, and my sin and my death are no more. In my crucifixion with Christ, I take on and become His righteousness and His life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Our sin has been placed on Christ, and He bore our sins through His death on the cross. Not only that, three days later He rose from the dead and defeated sin and death once for all. We no longer bear our sins or the wrath we deserve. But instead, God the Father looks on us as He looks on Christ, seeing only Christ living in us. In Christ, we own His righteousness as if we had walked in perfect obedience to the law ourselves. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, just like the Judaizers, many people today also refute this doctrine of justification by faith alone. They don't understand, or they don't want to understand, how a man can be declared righteous without doing anything in himself to work for it and earn it. Far too many professing Christians seek righteousness through their moral works, church involvement, or some spiritual event such as baptism or walking the aisle to say a prayer. Also, every other religion is based on some form of works to attain some spiritual standing. Some people even think they will gain eternal life simply because they are sincere in whatever belief system they have concocted themselves. 
It is a general principle in life that if we want to gain something, we have to work for it. A paycheck, the food we eat, the cars we drive, the home we live on, the better job we want, and the list goes on. God's Word even commands working hard to provide for yourself and your family. Going so far as to say, if anyone is not willing to work, then he should not eat either. Why wouldn't it be just the same for our righteousness? Work clearly isn't a bad thing in itself. Shouldn't we have to earn our salvation, or at least part of it? Scripture answers this question with undeniable clarity. In Romans 3, 10-12, Paul quotes Psalm 14, saying, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We can't earn our righteousness because we have no ability to do good in ourselves. Romans 8, 7 and 8 further explains, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Before faith in Christ, we produce nothing but sin. No doubt our flesh hates to admit this. Our flesh is riddled with pride. We lie to ourselves, compare ourselves with others, and convince ourselves that we really aren't that bad. We're actually pretty good. In reality, even all those things I listed that we can work to earn, even those things we don't deserve. Romans 6.23 says, "...the wages of sin is death." The only thing man has truly earned or deserves is the wrath of God. God could strike down every man where he stands and he would be just in doing so because we are all guilty before him. But praise God, he is not only just, he is also extravagantly merciful. He doesn't immediately crush us with his wrath as we deserve. But He shows us mercy in patiently allowing us time to repent and warning us to do so throughout His Word. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The natural man is dead in his sin, unable to do anything to save himself. Dead people don't just bring themselves back to life and get up out of the coffin. Even the faith necessary to repent is an act of mercy and a gift from God. But God, in His rich mercy and great love, raises us from the dead and makes us alive in Christ. Christ is the only man who has ever lived a good and righteous life. Christ truly did produce His own righteousness, and He freely laid down His life for dead sinners like you and me. He draws us to Himself, takes our sin upon His shoulders, and gives us His righteousness. Christ Himself says in Matthew 11:28 28-30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy and His burden is light because He has done everything we are powerless to do. Through faith in Him, He has paid the debt of our sin and and death. And it is credited to our account His own perfect righteousness. 
This wraps up our discussion on saving faith, but we have only cracked the surface of all that is encompassed within faith in Christ. Our crucifixion with Christ is only the beginning. Next, we will look at how God sustains us through sanctifying faith in Christ. Because righteousness comes through Christ alone, the children of God must carry on spiritual life by faith in Christ. We will first look at the life I now live in the flesh. In verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. First, Paul says he has been crucified, and he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. Now he says, the life which I now live in the flesh. Which is it? Does Paul himself live or not? Yes and no. The man crucified is the old man, dead in bondage to his sin, cursed under the law, powerless to please God in any way. That old man is dead and has become a new creation. The new man has been released from his bondage to sin and the crushing condemnation he faced under the law. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says it plainly, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. All that being said, that does not mean that our physical, earthly life in the body has been taken from us. Paul does not use the word flesh here to mean the sinful flesh, as he often does, but he is referring to our life in the mortal body. He's saying, we still live on in physical bodies, yet not our old man, but the new man made alive in Christ. We do still have our flesh to contend with, and our flesh is still weak and full of sinful passions and desires. The Christian is not freed from sin altogether, but rather he is freed from his enslavement to sin. We will undoubtedly still battle with our sin every day, but sin no longer holds us under lock and key in its dungeon. Christ has stormed the gates and broken the bonds and chains of sin. And He's also given us the strength and the weapons we need to fight sin while we live on in our physical lives. Next, Paul goes on to say, I live by faith in Christ. Look again at verse 20. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here Paul explains that this life which we carry on in the body is not to be lived according to the flesh, but we are to live on according to our faith in Christ. Though the old enslaved man is dead, nothing has changed in our ability to live righteously within ourselves alone. Christ's righteousness imputed to us not only washes away our sins, it is also the strength in which we now walk as God's children. This strength is made available to us through the Holy Spirit living in us. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Along with the righteousness of Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit to make us walk according to that righteousness. Turn with me to Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Tommy was talking this past Wednesday about our need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Paul asked the Galatians in Galatians 3, 2 and 3, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The reason we need the gospel daily is because the gospel is not just the power by which we initially receive salvation. It is also the power by which we work out our salvation. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul tells us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Unfortunately, because of the weakness of our flesh, we sometimes lose sight of the gospel and give in to the sinful desires of our flesh. Sometimes we may even feel hopeless to defeat certain sin in our lives. This is a lie and ultimately stems from forgetting our source of life and victory over sin. There are multiple ways this can happen. The way that generally comes to mind most readily is by doing something quote-unquote bad that in and of itself rebels against God's commands. We just read a long list of these deeds of the flesh from Galatians 5. When we fall into this type of sin, we must immediately look to our faith in our Savior, confess our sin, repent, receive His forgiveness, remember that He has freed us from our bondage to sin, and press on, walking in the Spirit by faith, putting to death the sinful passions of our flesh. Another way we often walk in our flesh is by allowing our obedience to God's good commands to be driven by fleshly strength and motivation. This will either lead us to do the good thing with sinful motives or to neglect doing the good thing altogether. It seems odd to refer to obeying God's commands as sinful, but anything done in the flesh outside of faith is undoubtedly sin. In our flesh, we seek our own glory, and we feel entitled to be rewarded or acknowledged for our service. But in faith, we know there is nothing good in our flesh. And our only source of righteousness is Christ. And it is our privilege to serve Him by the Spirit He gives us. This sin can often be challenging to identify. It can also include literally any righteous command God has given us. 
studying His Word, being active within our church community, praying, speaking spiritual things to one another, helping others see their sin, serving our families, desiring more children, raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, or fill in the blank with things you may pursue with fleshly strengths and motives. It could be the person serving the church like crazy, but inwardly seeking the praise of man. Or the husband who is only motivated to love his wife and lead her well if he believes he's getting the respect that God commands. Or the wife who is only motivated to respect her husband when she feels like he is loving her as Christ loves the church. What do we do when we become aware of this sin, of pursuing righteousness in our flesh and for fleshly motives? Should we just abandon whatever the righteous act is because we, can't keep, because we keep sinning? Should we just stop serving the church if we have noticed sinful motives? Should we stop seeking to love our wives or respect our husbands because we've noticed that we withhold it when we see their flaws? Absolutely not. For we would still be in sin by not obeying God's commands. Rather, just as before, we look to our faith in our Savior confess our sin, repent, receive His forgiveness, remember He has freed us from our bondage to sin, and press on walking in the Spirit by faith, putting to death the sinful passions of our flesh. This is a messy business because we happen to be attached to our sinful flesh, and it constantly sets its desire against the Spirit. But rest assured that God is at work in you, and we are sealed in Him by His Holy Spirit. And His Spirit is no pansy. Philippians 1.6 is always true for those in Christ. For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Learning this truth yet again for myself is actually part of what led me to this text. I was given the opportunity to preach if I wanted to. I wanted the opportunity. I desired to know how to preach, and I knew it would be a good challenge for me. However, I was also filled with unhealthy fear and nervousness. It's one thing to be nervous and desire to do a good job, but it was more than that for me. As I asked God to reveal my sin, I saw that I was really seeking the approval of man and not God. The very thing Paul accuses the Judaizers of in Galatians 1.10 where he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I was more concerned about how man might respond to my preaching than about how God would respond. I repented of my sin, asked God to help me press on in faith, and here I am, still nervous, I confess. But much more less, much less so. And I pray by faith, ultimately seeking the approval of God and not men. The last aspect of this faith is a glorifying faith. Because righteousness comes through Christ alone, the children of God will glorify God by faith in Christ. We first see in verse 20 that Christ willingly gave himself up in love. Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. In John 10.18, Christ says, No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Christ owed His life to no one, nor was He overpowered and His life taken from Him against His will. But rather, God the Son willingly gave Himself up in love. 
Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God Himself became a man and suffered the cross for us in love. And yet we can be so arrogant as to attempt to steal His glory from Him. God doesn't need us. He is not indebted to us. We are entitled to nothing but His wrath. Yet because of His love, His grace, His mercy, His justice, He sent His Son who gave Himself up to the will of His Father's loving plan of redemption. What a God we serve. The glory is all His. Finally, in verse 21, Paul brings his argument to a head by proclaiming that Christ did not die in vain. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul says it is either one or the other. You can't have both. Either righteousness comes through the law, and Christ died a pointless death, or righteousness comes by grace through faith in Christ. To add even an ounce of works to the completed work of Christ is to call His death insufficient. As we discussed before, God has not called us to abide by as much of the law as we could and then trust Christ to polish up our few blemishes. God calls us to complete and perfect obedience, abiding by all the works of the law to which we failed miserably. Christ is our only hope. Why does this reveal a glorifying faith? Because from start to finish, this truth reveals the immeasurable holiness of our God and gives all the glory to God Himself. God's story of redemption perfectly displays every aspect of His holy character. He alone is the hero of this redemption story. In love, God created us in His image, declaring us good and giving us all things good. In rebellion, we turned away from God to sin and sought that which is not good. In mercy and grace, without compromising justice, God set into motion His plan for redemption. He has since been drawing His people to Himself, redeeming them, sanctifying them, sustaining them, using them as His ambassadors, and giving them dominion to rule and reign in His ever-growing kingdom. Faith in works to save or sanctify us seeks glory for man. But faith in Christ brings glory to God. As we run the Christian race, may we continually remember that our one purpose is to bring God glory through faith in His Son. As we come to a close this morning, I want us to recognize that this saving faith, sanctifying faith, and glorifying faith all find their union in Christ. It is Christ who saves us by faith. It is Christ who sustains and sanctifies us by faith. And it is Christ who brings glory to His Father by faith. Those who have not received the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith in Christ must repent of their sin, including all efforts to merit their own righteousness, and they must rest wholly in the completed work of Christ. Philippians 2, 9-11 tells us that ultimately God will receive His glory. 
Paul says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will either accept Christ now as Lord with joy and receive His righteousness. Or we will come face to face with His Lordship later and receive God's wrath. For those who have already received saving faith and now live in Christ and in His righteousness, we must remember always to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, realizing that the same faith that brought us His righteousness also works constantly within us to live out His righteousness. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Brothers and sisters, may we continue to trust in Christ alone and press on in faith. Father, we praise You for this truth. Father, we recognize that You are good and holy and just and merciful. God, though we sinned and rebelled against You, uh, God, You loved us. You sent Your Son. You, Christ, You laid down Your life for us. And through faith, we can receive You. And not only that, God, through faith, we can follow You. No other way. Even as Christians, we can't follow You in ourselves. But through faith, we can. God, we pray that You would help us uh, to take hold of this truth, to take hold of this faith, to bring God glory through faith in Christ, not through ourselves. We pray all these things in Christ's name.